Welcome to All Things Apostolic. Over the last two weeks, we've spent a lot of time focusing on the Asbury Revival. And if you've watched the news at all lately, you'll notice that this revival has spread to other campuses across the United States. Yesterday, Dr. Nathaniel Wilson briefly discussed some of the Hebrew words for worship. And today we have with us Jennifer Barrett, Executive Vice President of Wilson University and Ph.D. student at Faulkner University to help us discuss and dive deeper into the Hebrew words. Well, thank you for having me today. Um, I do want to talk about worship, but do it uh, from the context of a particular episode in the Old Testament, which is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. So 2 Samuel 6 narrates two attempts by King David to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The first was not successful and the second was successful. And I just want to briefly talk about worship in the context of those two events because the Ark was then housed at the Tabernacle of David and the Tabernacle of David has importance for us as worshipers. So in the first attempt, there was a lot of rejoicing. There was singing, there was dancing. Uh, one of the Hebrew words is sahak, and it means to play. It can refer to a sport, but we know in this instance that the play was specific to music because there's a long list of instruments that were used, wood instruments, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, and cymbals. So this is a time of joy and celebration and boisterous worship. However, the attempt was unsuccessful, and that's because they followed the method of the Philistines rather than the method that God had instructed previously. And Uzzah, or Uzzah, had reached out to steady the ark, and in touching it, uh, he was struck dead, as we know. <clears throat> and I'm sure he had very good intentions in reaching out to steady it, but it violated God's rules. They had not followed God's guidelines for handling uh, the ark, which represented his presence or his throne because his presence uh, was between the cherubim. So in a sense, by touching the ark, which was against God's guidelines, it was irreverent. And I think what's important to recognize is sometimes as apostolics, our exuberant worship uh, can be criticized by others as being irreverent. But in this case, the Bible does not indicate that David's worship and the worship of, of the Israelites was in any way irreverent because that was before the Lord. It was for God. What was irreverent was the mishandling of the ark and not recognizing its holiness and that, that need, the holiness needed to be handled in a special way. And of course, if his holiness is mishandled, then God is zealous for protecting his own holiness. Now, David initially was angry at God's response, um, but he was also afraid. And this fear is something that I want to come back to in a little bit. We're going to talk about David's fear. <clears throat> so in the second attempt, we have the priests and the Levites, and this time David followed the instructions of the Lord and did it properly. And so he had the priests and the Levites sanctify themselves because consecration and separation is important when you're going to be handling the holiness of God or in the presence of God's holiness. And again, we have celebration and joy 
David brought up the ark with simcha, which is joy, gladness, happiness. He danced, karar, before God with all of his might, his strength, and his power. So there was shouting for joy, teruah, and the sound of the shofar blowing. Now, of course, we know that David's wife, Michael, or Michal, she saw him as as they were entering the city of David, she saw him leaping, which is pazaz. And in that sense, the, the Hebrew word refers to someone being very agile, like a spring. So he is not just kind of bouncing, but he is springing in his leaping and he's dancing. And some of the translators uh, translate karar as whirling. So it's a dancing with a whirling, very exuberant. Um, so he's leaping, dancing, whirling before the Lord. And of course, his wife looked at that and she held him in contempt for it. But David responded and reminded Michal that God had chosen him and not her father to rule over Israel. And therefore, he would sahak before the Lord. So we see David's first attempt to get the ark. And in this context, there's music, there's exuberance. Um, the second attempt also has the same joy and celebration, but what separated the two, one unsuccessful and one successful, was also how they handled and recognized and acknowledged the holiness of God. Now, the book of First Chronicles also depicts both of these events, um, and so I just it's reiterating what we find in 2 Samuel, that they played music with all of their might. And I want you to just hear the exuberance in this, this demonstrative worship. Um, they were singing, there were harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, cymbals of brass, the shofar, trumpets. So this is noisy praise. And then also we read about David's revival in uh, 1 Chronicles chapters 15 and 16, again with singing, musical instruments, shouting and dancing. Very demonstrative, very exuberant. And also what's interesting is in the account in Chronicles when David's wife sees him, um, the verb is a little bit different. And this one is rakad, which can be interpreted similar meaning, but it's to dance, leap. It can be skipping or bounding. So again, very, David is expressing very uninhibited praise. <clears throat> and then we know that the ark was housed in a tent or a tabernacle that David had set up for it because there was not yet the temple built. And this exuberant worship was something that continued there. Uh, they were to continually minister, thanking and praising God with psalteries and harps, cymbals and trumpets. So this really, the, the tabernacle of David opened up a new dimension of praise and worship that was different than the previous ritual and ceremony. Thank you, Sister Jennifer. When we look at or think about worship and praise in the English, we're kind of limited in the words that we use. Mm -hmm. We use praise, we use worship. Maybe we think of a couple other words but rejoicing. it seems rejoicing. Yeah. But it seems that in the Hebrew language, they have a lot more words um, that they use mm -hmm. to describe different components or aspects mm -hmm. of worship. Mm 
Yeah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely, and that's a great point. We have this broad spectrum of words in Hebrew that relate to rejoicing and worship and praise, and yet in modern languages, those words have been um, condensed into just a few. But I'll, I'll share about a dozen words just to give you the idea, again, of the importance of exuberance and, and demonstrative worship that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, one is yada. And this comes from the root word yod, which means hand. And so it's to extend the hands in a throwing or casting motion. Barach is to bless, to kneel. Shabach, to laud or to praise, to address with a loud voice. Halal, and this is where we get the, the word hallelujah, is to celebrate, to show or boast, to be clamorously foolish about our adoration of God. Heal. Gil, sorry, is to rejoice, to spin around under the influence of violent emotion. Ranan, to rejoice by singing aloud and shouting for joy. It can be a ringing cry. Taka is to clap hands. Shaha is to bow down to prostrate. Tehila is to sing a new song. It's a hymn of spontaneous praise glorifying God. Zamar is a musical term for praise, so it implies the use of stringed instruments. It's celebrating God in song and music. Hul is to uh, dance, to whirl. And then Toda means to praise with thanksgiving. And even today in, in modern Hebrew, a simple word way to say thank you is Toda. So it's worshiping with a sense of gratitude and thanks. And we find these words just, these are not all of them. These are just examples of them. But we find them throughout the Bible, but especially throughout the book of Psalms. And, of course, we know that Psalms were written by David. So he was using a broad vocabulary in order to describe this amazing worship. So as we've discussed worship so far, you've, you've kind of framed it. Um, in the Old Testament from the standpoint of David's tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And so I could see some people saying, well, that's, that's Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So when we look at this, David's tabernacle in the Old Testament, is there relevance to that in the New Testament? Absolutely, and thank you. That's a great question. So um, Dr. Gary Erickson, he has a wonderful book. It's an older book, but I, both of uh, we've both read it. Pentecostal um, Worship. Pentecostal Worship. We use it here in one of our classes in at Wilson University. Uh, but yeah, it, it, Dr. Gary Erickson has written a great book on Pentecostal Worship, and he makes a very interesting point. He says, the tabernacle of Moses was a Gibeon, and the priests still offered sacrifices there without the Ark of the Covenant. Yet David's tabernacle became the center of praise and worship. So David's tabernacle is where the Ark is. You've still got at, at Gibeon, they're, they're still performing their sacrifices and doing the ritualistic worship. But now in the tabernacle of David, you have um, very exuberant uh, demonstrative worship that's the center of praise and worship was at David's tabernacle and we know that God's approval was upon it and it and the point that Erickson makes is that it became a type of a greater day <clears throat> and so we also know that we look as apostolics we look to the first century church as our as 
a model for us to follow. And so the question is, how do we connect then David's tabernacle to the first century church? Because both of those are models for us. So there certainly is a correlation, if you will, between David's tabernacle and New Testament yes, worship. Yes, absolutely, exactly. And so there's three main references um, two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that refer to the tabernacle of David and help, uh, help us make this, this connection. One is Isaiah 16. Now, in this context of this particular chapter, Isaiah was giving um, prophetic just, uh, judgments against the nations. And he, Isaiah refers to the tabernacle of David prophetically, pointing to the one from the line of David who would someday sit on the throne and rule over everything. And of course, we know that this had a fulfillment in the New Testament. <clears throat> also, there is Amos 9. And in this chapter, Amos is giving a powerful promise of the future restoration of Israel. And so, uh, through Amos, God says, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, said the Lord that doeth this. So God is going to fulfill his covenant with Abraham and with David and he's going to bring in the nations and rule over all of them. And so the tabernacle of David is important because there is a restoration of Israel, but there's also an ingathering of the heathen who are going to be called by his name. And then we see this connection with Amos 9 in Acts 15. So in the book of Acts, we've had the conversion of Cornelius. Of course, we have Acts 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and that is the beginning of the fulfillment of Amos 9. But then we have also um, the saving of Cornelius and his household, and then this is causing some disruption or uh, a lot of debate and disagreement in Jerusalem about what to do with the Gentiles. And in Acts 15, James spoke up, and he referred to the prophecy of Amos to confirm that God was reaching out to the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And so the re, what James was verifying is that the redemptive mission of Christ includes both Jews and Gentiles. And again, that the day of Pentecost, it, it marks the beginning of that restoration. And then James was confirming that Amos's prophecy, the rebuilding of the, of the tabernacle of David was occurring. And so the New Testament was fulfilling the prophecy of Amos that talks about the raising of the tabernacle of David. Now, interestingly, the Jews point to the day of Pentecost to commemorate the giving of the law at Sinai. So I just want to take a detour for a moment for a little comparison. But we point to the day of Pentecost as the beginning of the restoration of the tabernacle of David because we know that uh, it was uh, the day of Pentecost. The initial outpouring occurred in the upper room, which was located on Mount Zion. So we have this, this contrast now between Sinai and Zion. And worship at Sinai was established around a sacrificial system. But Jesus fulfilled all of the elements of the law 
and with his once and for all sacrifice, he did away with the necessity of having any further sacrificial system. Uh, Sinai was written on tables of stone. Zion represents the new covenant written in our hearts. Sinai represents worship that is formal and ritualistic. Zion represents heartfelt, passionate, intense worship. So we have this contrast between Sinai and Zion. So it's not us simply drawing our own conclusion or saying that they correlate. It's the significance of Acts 15 actually uh, quoting mm -hmm. Amos. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's not like we're saying, hey, this fits because it fits our theology. Right. We're saying this fits because the book of Acts clearly calls this out mm -hmm. and links it itself exactly. to Amos. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And so... So, we, yeah, we have this correlation then. There, we have the Old Testament tabernacle of David, but it was creating a new type. And then we have James in the book of Acts connecting that Amos' prophecy of the restoration of that tabernacle would happen, and that's what's happening in the early church. And we look to the early church for that model, and that early church was providing the outpouring not only to Jews but to Gentiles. And so we see the outpouring of the Spirit, and that is a further fulfillment of the reestablishment of the tabernacle of David. That's awesome. That's a good way to look at it. And so before we conclude, mm -hmm. earlier on you mentioned David's fear in the context of worship. What does David's fear tell us about worship? Thank you. I'm glad you brought me back around to that uh, because I think as apostolics, we really emphasize holiness, and, uh, and I think it's so important to recognize that the story of getting the ark to Jerusalem provided an important lesson about God's holiness. So the first attempt failed because David did not recognize that God's holiness could be lethal. He's not a tame God who operates in a box and uh, we've made him up in our imagination to be what we want him to be. He is real. He is perfectly holy and majestic. And so um, David didn't recognize the, the danger that, that could occur by mishandling the holiness of God. Um, scholar Dale Ralph Davis says, that you, are, you dare not trifle with God, who is both real and holy. Yahweh is not your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. There is heat in his holiness. God wants to bless us. He doesn't want to destroy us, but we have to respect his holiness. So in chapter 6 of Second of Samuel, we, we had the contrast of these two incidents, these, these two episodes. In both episodes, there is exuberant and demonstrative praise and worship, as we saw. But in the first one, there was a failure to recognize God's holiness. And so the lesson was to tremble before God's holiness. And that was the fear. I mean, we know that we need the fear of the Lord. There is an awe, a, an, a reverential recognition of the majesty and the might of God and his perfect, beautiful holiness. We should never lose that fear of God. Um, but at the same time, we have this 
um, and I know I keep using the same words, it's hard in English to find the proper words, but exuberant, demonstrative, uninhibited rejoicing because of the presence of God, uh, making, it, making it the centralized aspect of life. Um, so what I want to conclude with is that these two ideas, this reverential fear of God's holiness and exuberant joy, these are held, these two concepts are held in balance in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The Bible shows us that having a fearful sense of God's holiness doesn't suppress joy, but it actually stimulates it. And so for apostolics, the holiness of God is something that we emphasize. We focus on the importance of recognizing and, and acknowledging God's holiness and pursuing holiness ourselves to be like Him. And it goes hand in hand with our worship. Our emphasis on holiness doesn't dampen our worship. It increases it and it releases it. In fact, Psalm 2 says, rejoice with trembling. So there's a paradox there. We as spirit-filled believers recognize the, the awesome holiness of our God. He, it, and worship comes from the worthness, right? That God is worthy of worship. So we recognize his worthiness because of his holiness and his character. And he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. That is worthy of the deepest praise and worship that we could provide to him. And so because we recognize his holiness, it releases within us exuberant, demonstrative, passionate, deep praise. That's awesome. When, when you mentioned Uzzah and his handling, if you will, of, of that component of worship, one of the things that I was thinking about is the revival that we are seeing at Asbury mm. and the way in which others are looking at what is happening at Asbury. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think there should almost be a reverence and some mm -hmm. fear in individuals talking out against what they're seeing at Asbury. And it almost reminds mm -hmm. me of Gamaliel and Acts in which he says, hey, there's, there's been other things that have arose. And don't be so quick to jump and make a conclusion that this is not of God. Mm. Because we've seen stuff arise already and it sorted itself out. But mm -hmm. if this is of God, mm -hmm. who are you to fight against it? Mm -hmm. And so that in the context, that's kind of what I thought about with, with the way the revivals are shaping up. You have some uh, on one side saying it's too exuberant and then you've got others on the other side downplaying some of the stuff that's happening there. And, you know, we've seen through, uh, I believe it was uh, Brother Fish down there, mm -hmm. um, people receiving the Holy Ghost. I've seen different videos mm -hmm. of individuals also being baptized in Jesus' name and what appeared to be um, fountains of some sort. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to look at the Asbury Revival that way as well. And and we should be a little fearful um, to call something or say something's not of God when it really could be. 
Um, but thank you so much for joining us today thank on this episode. Thank you for having me. And be sure to watch us on your favorite method of watching podcasts, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, or Apple. We are on there. Thank you. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.